the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry. As always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we jump in today's, into today's discussion, I do want to just mention if you're enjoying the uh, content we're doing on the podcast, I do have a Patreon. Um, we do need support. Um, I do try to reinvest all the funds back into the podcast and so forth. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. But today I have a, uh, a fellow podcaster, by the name of J.G. Michaels, host of the Parallax Views podcast. Um, frequent, uh, you've made appearances as well on, didn't you do um, on Zero Books, like their Patreon pod sometimes? Yeah, I had a Patreon podcast with C. Derek Varn. It was called yeah. Alternatives. Uh, I've been on the Antifada. I've also been on like some non-lefty type shows. I was on the Achelli Effect, which is more like, conspiracy type stuff so i'm kind of all over the place gotcha. just like my pod my uh podcast yeah I've, I've often been told that my podcast reminds people of uh deleuze and <laughs> the whole rhizome idea yeah um i mean i think i'm the same i don't really try to i mean obviously there is you know a, a certain focus on um on like post-structuralism anarchism and like left stuff broadly but you know i've had musicians or artists or poets as well so i don't really i don't really like to limit it to any specific topic yeah i sort of just use parallax views as a way to explore whatever i'm chasing at the time yeah in terms of my interests right yeah and i I also it's called parallax views for a very specific reason Uh, well first it's a reference to zizek but it's also a reference to a really interesting 70s conspiracy thriller movie called Parallax View with uh, Warren Beatty. <laughs> so I sort of get the conspiracy people through that, the people uh, who are interested in like JFK and, uh, you know, things like that, Gladio. Uh, so I get them through that. And then the people who see Parallax Views, they think the leftists will think Zizek. Yeah. So I have like two distinct audiences based on that title of the podcast gotcha i feel like i had first stumbled on you through that uh podcast with with uh with varn through zero books and then i checked out a couple episodes i think yeah because you had a i feel like you had andrew culp on a while i did have andrew culp on uh dark deluce yeah so i i checked that out and then i ended up reaching out to culp because i had read uh i was gonna have him not him, but I was going to do an article that he had written with another set of podcasters. And so I was kind of familiar. I was like, oh, shit, I, I don't even think I had known that he had written the Dark Deleuze book at that point. So Dark Deleuze is interesting because when I first read it, I didn't think he would get into the 
like conspiracy aesthetic, but he actually gets into that. Um, and I've always found conspiracy theory interesting as an aesthetic, which is one of the reasons I named it after, you know, that great conspiracy thriller parallax view, which right if you haven't seen it or your listeners haven't, they should definitely uh, hunt that movie down. But I'm like really interested in the aesthetic of like conspiracy and shadows and, you know, a general sense of foreboding and apocalypticism. And Andrew really nails that in <laughs> Dark Deluce. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely does. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that. I'd been thinking a while back about, so my parents in the 90s, particularly in like the early 90s, were definitely into the whole aliens sort of thing. And I think that was, you know, right around the time X-Files was airing, you know, on Fox but there were also these kind of news magazine style shows um, that were just centered around like the UFO and other like paranormal type shit. Mm -hmm. But they, you know, it's, yeah, it's that, not that was like, uh, like I remember one of the big things, I think it was Fox that did it. There was that alien autopsy documentary yeah, they yeah. released in like 96. I mean, it was all BS, right? Yeah. But it was really popular back then because of X-Files and that was sort of just the cultural moment we found ourselves in. I mean, it's weird because like the nineties were really, really conspiratorial. People forget that. And yet, you know, now it seems like we're in the age of, you know, conspiracy culture triumphing completely. Uh, the left believes in conspiracy theories. The right believes in it. The, the liberal centrists believe in it. It's a very weird moment. And I'm, I'm very interested in conspiracy theories uh, aesthetically, although I'm much more skeptical than people realize. Another thing that's funny from back... So I... Let's see. I, ne I didn't get to use the internet until I was already like a freshman in, in college. No, freshman in high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really funny that some of the same conspiracy stuff has persisted throughout the course of the internet in general, because I remember coming across flat earth theory way back in like 1997. Also like the Arkansas shit with the Clintons, like that was alive. Like that shit was already propagating back mm -hmm. in like the late nineties, which I think no, that's very true. That's very, well, the, the thing is my favorite conspiracy theory is that the conspiracies themselves are conspiracy. the conspiracy <laughs> yeah well yeah if, if you look back at uh so when you hear people talk about the illuminati right no one ever talks about the historical illuminati and where the conspiracy theories about it start and they start with the french revolution so the historical illuminati was in bavaria germany and they were really like a progressive almost like anarchist sort of secret society that believed in these enlightenment values. Yeah, because it was the illumined ones, right? Yeah, yeah, or illuminatus, yeah. Uh, they, and they were the illuminati, the plural of that. Right. So what's interesting is the conspiracy theories about the illuminati start with the French Revolution, and there's three main source documents for that. One of them is a person who claimed to have been a member of the illuminati and wrote something about it back then but the other two are more interesting to me because the other two are from two catholic propagandists 
uh, of the time period, and their names escape me right now. But they were basically saying, ah, you plebs, you don't understand. The, the Illuminati is, uh, you know, this satanic conspiracy or, or whatever. And it's funny because I'm thinking to myself, huh, it's, it's almost like these Catholic propagandists are trying to scare the plebs into hating the French Revolution by saying, ah, look, it's this shadowy group that wants to manipulate you. You know, so to me, like, I, I kind of wonder, maybe the real conspiracy was the conspiracy to blame the Illuminati, even though yeah. the Illuminati probably didn't even exist in France at that time. Classic misdirection. Mm-hmm. I mean, disinformation. The, the only conspiracy theory that I believe in is uh, it's a centuries old one. It's uh, it's called uh, capitalism. <laughs> I hear that a lot more now. Capitalism <laughs> is the conspiracy. It is. It absolutely is. It's a. It's like so obviously a uh, a pyramid scheme. Mm-hmm. I, this is this is like the terminology I've tried to use when talking to someone like my my dad who is pretty firmly like i don't know i think he just he enjoys the aesthetic of like this uh i don't know um like this christian fascist aesthetic which he like kind of he's a character you know what i mean so he kind of plays up on that but it's funny because with some of the things that have been going on with uh, covid19 i've been able to kind of crack his little ideological worldview a bit and been able to get him to start thinking outside of his usual comfort zone which is nice Oh, that's well. That's pretty cool. I've noticed a lot of people are sort of questioning their beliefs now. My mom said to me recently. She said to me, "You know, maybe communism and socialism are right." <laughs> I was like, "What planet am I living on now?" Right. Yeah. The world is uh, flipped upside. <laughs> the world is turned on its head. To borrow from uh, from Marx. Well, there's another, you know, it's funny. There's another conspiracy theory we could talk about real briefly is uh, this whole COVID thing. Everyone's saying, oh, Plandemic, watch the movie Plandemic, which I still haven't watched. But it's funny because I wonder, well, who funded this movie or who who is behind these protests um, when it comes to uh, the, the protests to reopen or liberate the economy? Uh, you have to wonder if, if there's some dark money influence there. As I said, you know, the real conspiracy is often uh, much more mundane. Yeah. It's, uh, let's see, St- Star Trek 9, the search, the search for more G. <laughs> it's an interesting aesthetic, though. I, I think uh, paranoia is a very interesting. It's interesting to me as an aesthetic. I don't know why that is. Maybe Lacan or Deleuze would have an answer to that. So, you know, I'm my I'm based in Austin and of course also the home of uh noted, Alex Jones. Uh, Alex Jones himself. And so it's been it's been really funny. I've talked about this a little bit in the past on the podcast to see the transition from like late 90s early 2000s Alex Jones where he was pretty critical of the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. And then all of that sort of flips because I've actually seen. Have you ever actually seen any of his his conspiracy movies that he's put like the DVDs yeah Police State two thousand. There was one. He did one documentary where he interviewed Gary Busey, and it's the funniest thing ever. Holy shit! That because Gary great. Busey is just like you have to understand the generals in the military are possessed by the demonic forces, and they're trying to bring about the new world order. 
Nice. Two peas in a pod there. <laughs> but I've seen Yeah, I, I, I remember his uh, earlier documentaries. I used to be real into Alex Jones when I was younger. I was, I was all into that stuff when I was younger. And then I read Chomsky and Michael Parenti, and I grew the fuck up. <laughs> sorry, I, I hope I can use... I'm sorry for the language. Oh, not at all. Uh, curse, cursing is welcomed, actually. <laughs> but I saw, let's see, it was a road... No, 9-11, Road to Tyranny. That is the only Alex Jones uh, mm-hmm. video I've ever watched. And then I did know a guy, so I had interned at a production house in Austin, and there was uh, the guy that did like editing and like motion graphics had worked on a couple of the DVDs <laughs> that Alex put out, mm-hmm. like back in the like I said before he kind of went on his new kind of like MAGA trajectory. So I thought that was kind of funny. Um, what about? Did you ever watch the? What is it? The fucking Zeitgeist films. Do you remember those? I do remember the Zeitgeist films. They were very popular when I started college. I didn't really get into them, but... I just remember watching... I watched the first two. I've actually thought about doing a uh, like doing a stream of, of the second one with, with some people on the Discord or something just to... I don't know. Just kind of thought it'd be funny and interesting to look back and see what the hell people were going on about in the early 2000s. Well, it's so weird now because, like I said, I mean, I've always been interested in conspiracy theories, but now that conspiracy theory is sort of the new black now, you know, it's fashionable. Right. And I'm like, to me, it was always interesting aesthetically. And there's probably like single conspiracy theories that are true or like contained conspiracies that that happen. Um, But I've always been very skeptical of grand conspiracy narratives. Which is to say, uh, oh, there, there's these shadowy puppet masters that control right. everything. I think that's a, an overly simplistic and meritocratic sort of based conception of the world. Like, like yeah. the people that believe in QAnon. If we can just overthrow the evil pedophile cabal that probably doesn't exist in my view, but they believe it exists... If we can just overthrow this cabal, we will restore the meritocracy. Or if you're a liberal, right... If we can just overthrow Trump, we can go back to normal and, you know, we'll overthrow the evil Putin bots. It's like so much of that stuff is driven by this sort of idea that we can restore the meritocracy. But, you know, the greatest conspiracy of all is the trick that's been pulled on all of us, right? The fact that we believe that there is a meritocracy that could have been saved because we never had one to begin with. Or that it's even possible to, you know, that that things occur in this very linear sort of fashion. Like, mm-hmm. I do X and X results in Y and then mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And like that there's a, there aren't unexpected outcomes whenever any sort of action is taken. And that people are often, you know what I mean? That people are um, capable of the type of, you know what I mean? Of directing events in a very linear fashion with predictable outcomes i think that like if you're invested in that sort of a worldview you're probably more susceptible susceptible to something like a uh like a conspiracy theory that's where the appeal is like that there's a logical because i think it's a lot more comforting to think that there is like the okay i can follow this procedure or this algorithm to achieve this end when oftentimes 
unexpected events occur at, at each phase of whatever is going on. Things are so <laughs> contingent. There's so much friction between different variables within our lives that, you know, oftentimes it's the unexpected, like, you know, who, who saw the, it's, it's the black swans as Nicholas Tlaib, my favorite problematic reactionary, <laughs> uh, would, would call it, you know, we live in, I mean, I think Tlaib's right in a way. We live in these highly complex societies where it's not easy to get all the answers. And in highly complex societies, he argues that, you know, our societies become more and more fragile. And I, I think that's true. And we become more and more prone to black swans or rare events that we don't account for that can just screw up everything, right? It's like a, a monkey wrench. And I think conspiracy theories become comforting when you have a really highly complex society that can't deal with a black swan. And we've had a lot of black swans recently. You know, 9-11, the 2008 crash, and now COVID. I mean, it sucks to be a young person or a person <laughs> that grew up in, you know, the, the 90s and then had to deal with 9-11, the crash, and now COVID. Yeah. I mean, I'm in my late 30s. I don't know what your age range late, late 20s late 20s okay so i probably got a decade so for someone like myself it's come it's going from like the 2000 bush gore election to iraq to or wait to no to 9-11 to iraq to 2008 to trump to COVID. it's like <laughs> so it's uh you know i'm at this point i'm so black pilled <laughs> that it, mm -hmm. um no, it just feels like history is repeating itself. So it's very hard to have any, I think I see a difference between myself and like, I do talk to a lot of Zoomers online mm -hmm. and I, I feel like, you know, I, I'm just so cynical and kind of jaded from seeing nothing but defeat after defeat or like all this, this sort of decline, at least from the time that my sort of, I guess, chrysalis was burst at some point in my, uh, in my early 20s. What what was your uh, breaking point? I th I mean, really. So I grew up. I literally grew up on a cattle ranch in in rural Texas, and so you know, I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian home. Uh, so it really, like, I pretty much was totally bought into Christianity, to like the idea of America, the American dream, and like all the kind of bullshit that you're sort of fed like the, the company line for America. Right. Why well, that, I mean, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian fundamentalist home and my parents were pretty open, but I, I always have been very bitter about this feeling of, uh, how do I put this? I always felt like I was lied to growing up. You know, oh, I did. It, I did. Yeah. I mean, so that's, and you get very, you can get very bitter about that. And I think that's part of what drives me. I'm, I'm partially yeah. driven by spite. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's kind of like this, fairy tale fantasy that you're that I grew up with and then it's as soon as I like leave my hometown for my first year of college that is like basically there's a, a baseball bat is <laughs> taken to that just right. like whoosh, bust my windshield <laughs> and well, there's glass may, in my face you know what that that may be interesting to explore because that's that's probably why I'm interested in conspiracy theory as an aesthetic or paranoia as an aesthetic, because there, there's something about the sort of paranoid mindset that 
really hones in on this idea of piercing the veil or having the veil fall. And, you know, you see the horrific Cthulhu-like monster reality for what it really is. And, I mean, even if you're not, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist or a paranoiac to understand the feeling of what it's like when the sort of veil falls, right? Right. Uh, I just had a guest on, uh, Jerry Lemke, who was uh, a Vietnam veteran, and he's a sociologist that wrote a really interesting book called The Spitting Image. And he followed that up with a book called Hanoi Jane, uh, War, Sex, and Fantasies of Betrayal. And both of those books deal with the Vietnam War and the aftermath of them. So The Spitting Image is about this, you know, you've probably heard the stories, all the troops came home from Vietnam and the hippies, especially the anti-war protesters, the women especially, female anti-war protesters, they spit on the troops. That's the story we're always told, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, Jerry Lemke is the guy who did all the research showing that that's BS. I mean, there may have been isolated incidents, right? but it wasn't a widespread thing at all. And people will still say, no, that's, that's exactly what happened. And in the second book, the Hanoi Jane book, he tackles Jane Fonda. And I mean, to this day, there's people that believe Jane Fonda sold out POWs when she was given tours of the POW camps in Vietnam. And even the POWs that got released, they said, no, she didn't do that to us. Now, she did go on Radio Hanoi and say, stop bombing these innocent people. She did tour the, the, the POW camps, but it's nothing like what the average Christian conservative right-winger would tell you, right? Yeah. And what interested me about Lemke is that when you really get to brass tacks, how do we look at the Vietnam War? How do a lot of older uh, folks, uh, specifically of a sort of Christian conservative or right-wing bent, how do they look at Vietnam? Well, they're always looking for a scapegoat, right? And the scapegoat, it can either be the hippies, Jane Fonda and the Hollywood liberals, you know, oh, we weren't allowed to get the job done. The politicians, yeah, they were Right, right, right. And for me, what was interesting about that interview, I finally just said to Jerry, I said, do you think the, the problem with all this is that ultimately there are some Americans that can't just accept that it wasn't Jane Fonda, it wasn't the Hollywood liberals, it wasn't the hippies, it wasn't the feminists. It was just that the Vietnamese peasantry successfully resisted U.S. efforts. And to me, that's like a veil falling, right? Because I grew up thinking like, oh yeah, those, you know, er, the liberals, they're the reason we lost Vietnam. I had family members that believed that. But then you really think about it, and when you get down to brass tacks, it's just a matter of, uh, the peasantry, the farmers, they resisted U.S. efforts. And I guess, like, that's why I'm interested in that sort of paranoid conspiracy culture aesthetic, because even something that simple, right, like the inability to confront the, the truth of Vietnam, I think it, it gets into that, like, truth-telling sort of idea. Like, the truth is that, you know, some people in a foreign country, they resisted the empire. And to me, it's, it's just interesting because when that veil falls and you realize, oh, 
every all this propaganda people fed me about oh it's it's Jane Fonda oh it's you know the hippies it, it kind of has a parallel to that conspiracy and piercing the veil and, and coming to the actual reality of it does that make sense or yeah, am I, I rambling so. too much no it, I think so. So it's it's funny that you mentioned this because my dad definitely, like growing up, was fascinated, uh, kind of like had an obsession with Vietnam, and so I, he would always definitely be referencing <laughs> uh, Jane Fonda as like this kind of villain. And then you know I kind of grew up watching like so his favorite movies were like Platoon and Apocalypse Now, and then mm-hmm. one like Hamburger Hill is another. I, I thought you were going to say that he used to make you hate watch Barbarella. <laughs> no, I, I still haven't seen Barbarella, but uh, so I kind of grew up on the, on those Vietnam movies and and hearing about Jane Fonda and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that is amusing, but yeah, um, it's there's a little bit of synchronicity here too because I had David Parsons on the podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he wrote a book about kind of the coffee house culture that oh oh david does uh the nostalgia trap right yes yeah yeah okay yeah yeah so i had him on and he kind of talked a little bit he he might have even referenced uh, lemke actually i I don't remember off the top of my head but he kind of was talking about so his book focuses yeah on that uh kind of coffee house culture that sprang up around all of the u.s military bases and so forth and he got into that whole kind of myth of the like the what what was it the spitting i forget the the yeah, the, the troops getting spit on. Yeah. Uh, so that that kind of mythology. So I think that's that's kind of interesting. I would definitely uh, you should reach out to David sometime. Well, I mean, it, I, I think it's interesting because that's just one example of one of the myths that if you're a young American, you'll you encounter these myths and you either accept them or you don't. Right. You. Like, I often feel. Do you ever feel like a Kafka character almost? Oh yeah, all the time. <laughs> because you, like, I will, I will have people say things to me, uh, like America is a republic, and I'll be like, no, nah, it's, it's kind of an empire at this point. And it, actually, that's like you've crossed a line when you've said that to certain people. Oh well, if somebody, whenever someone brings up this point about, oh, n- d- I'm, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Like, okay. <laughs> A uh, republic is a form of democracy, so I, I don't think you're like you're not <laughs> you're not really doing anything with that move. I, mm-hmm. That's one of the things that kind of like annoys the absolute shit out of me and right, me right. Well, I mean, there's just so many myths we're told. Like even even what we're fed about the founding fathers, like the idea that they're you know these perfect saintly figures. Right. I mean, they really weren't, and I, they probably wouldn't like most of the plebs today because they were kind of. I mean, yeah, they, they, they thought of like themselves the as aristocrats. Right. Yeah. They were the bourgeois, like owning right. class. I think Hancock, you know, John Hancock was a importer, exporter, and who knows what kind of other bullshit he was, he was up to. I, I think there was like a certain element of piracy and sort of shady, like slave dealings and like all of that that doesn't really get spoken the, about. The thing is, if you, if you say this to people, right, if you say, you know, America has become an empire. Or if you question uh, the the founding fathers and you say, well, no, that, that's kind of a romanticized image. In, in a way, I find it dehumanizing how we sort of turn the founding fathers into saints, how we view the Constitution as a as something akin to the Bible. 
Yeah. Like if you yeah. really if you really think about it, the Supreme Court, I mean, they're theologians interpreting a religious document. <laughs> and, and exactly. Good call. But when you bring these points up to people, uh, I've had people say, "Well, that's insane. You're you're certifiable." And I start thinking to myself, maybe I am crazy, <laughs> right? And you start to get that feeling like you're a Kafka character. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, I felt like a Kafka character for the last probably 10 years of my life. What, why is that? I just think, uh, you know, just getting older and not like I did. I sort of did all the right things growing up. Um, you know, I went to college. I got a degree, I got good grades, I did internships. The, the story of pretty much every uh, person I know, including myself, you, we did all the right things and we yeah. still got screwed. Yeah, and I mean, I, obviously I have like, I'm like the white male, you know, I have no health issues, I have no, you know, I'm pretty like, I have all the things that you would expect that, that are required to be successful in this uh, mer meritocracy that we're supposed to live in. Meritocracy, quote unquote. And so... You know, as I've gotten older and started to realize, you know, like the the best days of my life are probably behind me and the future. <laughs> I don't see a whole lot to be optimistic towards about the future and just sort right. of feeling like a lack of any kind of autonomy or ability to escape from, you know what I mean? It just feels like we're strapped into the, to the fucking, uh, it the feels roller like we're ride. in Nick Land's nightmares. Uh, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe not quite that severe. Well, they're, they're not. They're <laughs> not his nightmares. They're his like utopia for some fucking weird reason. But <laughs> what? Uh, so actually, let me let me bring this up since you you mentioned uh, Mr. Land. I I've actually been thinking about potentially reaching out to him about doing a podcast, maybe to talk Deleuze and Watari. He'll he'll answer your emails. I email I I emailed him once, and uh, he said things are too crazy right now. <laughs> And I, I'm, I'm like, what? It was right after the Trump election. I don't really like Nick Land, and I don't find much use for him anymore. Yeah, but I, I was still in my sort of edgy phase at the time. Right. I mean, obviously, the the neo reactionary stuff is garbage, but I think his, you know, his early work. I mean, meltdown. No, the er the early work is really interesting. Meltdown's really interesting. I mean, he's obviously a, he's smart. He's a great writer. He has a keen intellect and, and imagination. He's very posh as well, but no yeah. one ever talks about right. that. Yeah. I've always wondered if that's the reason for his sort of gloomy outlook. Because, I mean, if you listen to his accent, he probably comes from like one of those, what, the county homes in Britain? Like, you know, rural countryside, right. like old money. And like maybe that's how he feels about capitalism because I've I've known a lot of old money people that almost feel enslaved to their position in life, um, because they 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 literally just have to inherit the estate, right? Right. And that's yeah. sort of their lives. It's that, that old school, that old school kind of thing that that like it's an old school conservatism that is somewhat not fully entangled with capital, like. There is some overlap, but the circuitry is different, right? Like it's kind of, it's not entirely hooked up, right? Like there's a, it's kind of like if you have one of those old, uh, what is it, the composite cables for your television, the red, white, yeah, yeah, and yellow, um, versus like the composite, like the the red, white, the green, the blue, right? right? So it's like hooking up that old, that old uh, technology mm -hmm. to the new HD system. Well, it, I, I guess what I'm saying is like, uh, 
I mean, if you meet people that are like that rich, like generationally, what I've noticed is like, they almost feel like they don't have an option. Uh, they sort of, I, this is going to be, I'm going to sound lowbrow as all get out saying this, but people should really watch the, the TV series, the Gilmore girls. It, it actually covers some of this stuff. Well, like if you've ever met like old money people, they don't feel like they have a choice. Uh, that's what's so weird about capitalism, right? Because like everyone talks about how capitalism makes us more free. No, no, it doesn't. I mean, if you're, if you're like from an old money family, you don't really have a choice. Like ultimately you're just given the estate. Your life is sort of already decided for you. You will take care of the estate and that's just how it is going to be. Um, and also that's another thing that always is like interested me about the culture we live in is this idea of freedom is I don't feel very free. I mean, when just in our culture, you sort of have to follow a, a preset preset code of conduct. You know, there's certain ideals you have to follow. Like the, the ideal masculinity is still like John Wayne. And I'm like, well, why is that? I don't, that doesn't make me feel free. I don't want to follow this preset code. Right. You know, the, the ideal, I don't know what, what would the ideal woman be? You know, now I guess women all have to be, I don't know, Kim Kardashian. And I'm like, well, why does that have to be the ideal? Um, and, and the culture feels so monogamous now, or not monogamous. I mean, uh, Freudian slip. Um, <laughs> uh, it's like we have a monoculture. Like everyone talks about how, oh, it, it, land of the free. And yet we all watch the same TV shows. Everyone watches The Walking Dead or Game of Thrones. You know, everyone, you know, we all consume the sort of same products. I mean, it's kind of boring in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah, Whereas and in, in, in Japan, for some reason, uh, a highly collectivist culture uh, produces like niche niche genres within genres. Not only is there J-horror, there's like J-horror that is about, you know, schoolgirls. And then there's J-horror about schoolgirls, but they have to fight zombies all the time. And then there's probably like a subgenre of that. And like, there's niches within niches. It's like a nesting egg. Uh, so you can have that type of expression in Japan, but apparently not in the U.S., where everyone just watches The Fucking Walking Dead. <laughs> I mean, to a degree, but I think that trend is definitely that is breaking. That is broken significantly. Consensus reality is breaking down. Oh, a absolutely. I mean, we, to some degree, like I mean, a popular show now, or even an album that goes that's popular, doesn't have the kind of reach that it it did at one time pre-internet, you know? Um, I mean, even... Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. I mean, I, sometimes I think, not to be the contrarian, but I think sometimes people overstate the breakdown of consensus reality. I always like to mention to people, you know, there is something that AOC, Bernie, um, Biden, Republicans, that they all have in common. They all talk about family values. If you look up like some of their tweets and their speeches, they'll all talk about like the family and the middle class. I mean, there's still some sacred cows that are sort of uh, agreed oh, yeah. upon yeah. within. Because right. ultimately, U.S. elections, that's another thing you can't really say out loud, is that U.S. Elect elections are geared towards uh, the middle class, you know, because, you know, they're the ones with the leisure time to vote. Right. 
I do see that, you know, obviously, right, it's not fully closed off, but the the process of going down the more niche culture is is the trend and that is because you know capitalism has to create new new desires and new products and new commodities for you for you to achieve so it behooves capitalism to have this sort of continuing as niche within niche within niche right. and that just propagates more products well i, I should have mentioned japan is technically a capitalist culture so maybe right. japan's just ahead of the curve they definitely do tend to be ahead of the curve, obviously, like technologically speaking. But I think even I cultur- think culturally, they yeah, are too. culturally, I, it's weird I, in the sense of uh, like fashion. Um, I think particularly now, Japan and Korea are like ten years ahead of us as far as fashion goes. And I think you do, t- you have as well. Like, I, I think I think they may actually even be ahead of us in terms of. You know, people like to throw around the, the term late like stage capitalism, but like I think Japan is probably farther along the road of, of late stage capitalism than we are in some ways. I mean, there's things in Japan that really fascinate me. Like, uh, not not I'm not like a weeaboo or anything. I'm not obsessed with Japanese culture, but uh, like the suicide forest is really interesting. Uh, the reports I've read of people dying of exhaustion uh, due to working so many hours. Um, and I, I like often wonder, I'm like, maybe that's what's in store for us. You know, um, the incel thing as Francis Fukuyama, uh, once pointed out sort of was happening in Japan in the nineties. Yeah. They didn't call it incels, but, uh, I feel like Japan, you know, maybe a glimpse into the future for the U S I could see it. Um, yeah, there's definitely, it, that's an interesting, I wish someone, I wonder, is there a book on on that topic because it in, is it interesting like a number of like the whole relationship post-world war ii with japan and the states and capital because for one thing like i don't so i i do keep kind of i pay attention to fashion and um for a while there like uh what is it like the selvage denim jeans were like super popular and the japanese brands were like the high like the top uh quality wise denim that you could purchase because somehow like the Japanese had gotten a hold of the old American like looms, the old school looms that like, I don't know, Levi Strauss used back in like, I don't know, the fifties or something. So a lot of that equipment got exported to Japan and then Japan became like the number one, like they made the best denim in the world quality wise and the most sought after denim jeans and so forth. Like Motomaru or something like that was a, huge Japanese denim brand. But I mean, there's there's tons of them, which I think is really interesting that Japan sort of embraced this weird, like, or has this kind of weird colonial um, imperial relationship with, with the states. It's like a, it's a funhouse mirror United States almost. Right, right. Yeah, there's an interesting theory that, I forget who has postulated it, but I, I have some sociologist friends that have talked to me about it that, uh, Japan just bypassed modernism after right, World War yeah. II and went straight <laughs> into postmodernism. I could see it. Uh, hell, uh, Watari himself wrote that book, or at least the book was published. It was like a Machinic Eros about mm-hmm. his. Uh, he was apparently a weeb himself. Wasn't he in Tokyo for a while? I think there's been some like interesting writing on that. I, 
I think so. I I hadn't even stumbled upon this until the other day when I forget. I I saw like the title Machinic Eros, and I was like, oh, that sounds that sounds cool. That like my ears perk up. And then I went. How, how did you uh, get interested in? I know you wanted to talk about this, but. I'll tell you how I got interested in, in this theory stuff, but first I want to know how you got interested sure. in theory and Guattari. Yeah, yeah uh, so I, going back to college, um, I, it's actually pretty ironic that, do you know who, you know who Todd McGowan is, right? Of yeah. Y theory? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So ironically, okay, so I majored in English for my undergrad, and as part of that I had a teacher that, kind of exposed us a little bit to Derrida and then Foucault and, and I'm trying to think uh, maybe it was like, who wrote the male gaze article? Uh, Was that Kristeva? No, that's not Kristeva. That's Laura Mulvey. So I like had a little bit of exposure. Kristeva is uh, the work on abjection. Yeah. It was Laura Mulvey that has that famous like male gaze in cinema article. Um, So it was really part of like my English degree that, got me first interested in in things and it kind of post-structuralism in particular really kind of mapped on this was right around the time that the Iraq war was gearing up and I was like it seemed like the perfect way to parse what what I was literally seeing happen in the world like this you know Colin Powell going in front of the UN with the vial and like all this kind of bullshit run up to war that I could clearly see was ironically from watching Vietnam <laughs> war movies, I knew from the jump was going to be pretty much like a replay of that same phenomenon of like sort of this imperial war force that really doesn't like it. They're not really interested in achieving a goal other than, than conflict and, and production for, you know, defense contractors or what have you. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so Todd McGowan was actually at the university I went to, but he left like the year before. And so I remember going to my, that professor's office hours, the, the professor that ended up replacing McGowan like the next year. And uh, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm really interested in this uh, post-structuralism stuff. What do you recommend that I read? And she recommended two books, one of which was Simulacra and Simulation by Baudrillard, and the other was um, A Thousand Plateaus from... Deleuze and Watari. And so I definitely, like, I, I delved into Baudrillard almost immediately and r- really enjoyed a lot of Baudrillard. I, I tried re- getting into A Thousand Plateaus at the time, but it was far, t- I, like, didn't have the background at the mm-hmm. time to really even <laughs> delve into it. So um, for the long, longest time, I was more so interested in, like, Derrida, Foucault, mm-hmm. Baudrillard, and... Uh, so yeah, that's ever since, you know, it's been like 20 years that I've been in this theory cell mindset. You know, it's, it's going to sound so cringe how I, uh, did you say theory cell? I did say theory cell. <laughs> we're, we're taking it back. We're taking it back <laughs> for the people. I, I thought I was going to get, um, I don't know. I guess that's not cringe. I view internet cultures as cringe. I can't do this internet language stuff. Uh, but I mean, it's all, all of it is tongue in cheek, right? That's, I, I would hope so. <laughs> that's kind of what I love about the internet, like the, the irony within irony within irony aspect of it. I think, I mean, it's, I think. I, I'm going to get really cringe and say that I think David Foster Wallace had a point 
about sincerity. I know it's cringe even mentioning David Foster Wallace <laughs> at this point. See, my, my irony is completely sincere, though. It's 100% sincere. Right, right. Well, I mean, he has a good – he had a good point, though, about I, – I forget where he wrote it, but he was saying, you know, sincerity isn't seen as, like, cool, which has sure. sort of created this situation where, you know, we've shut ourselves off from having those, like, gooey moments. Right. You know, like, oh, like, like if we're always ironic – Right. I mean, how can we experience things like love or closeness or, you know, um, but maybe maybe there's a sort of ironic sincerity or sincere irony that we can achieve. I mean, I I feel like that's what I'm (laughs) what I'm doing. I mean, what else? Like I discussed earlier, I mean, how else could one feel and respond to a world like this other than through irony? Like it's it's the material conditions of postmodernity that are. Absolutely. Well, if you don't, if you don't maddening. laugh and create distance, you'll cry, right? You know. I mean, how else? Like, it's if you're a, th- a thoughtful, um, you know, critical thinking kind of, you know, person. I don't see how you could live a day in this world without just collapsing into right into utter. Well, I, that's that's the madness. that's the that's the mechanism of of irony, right? Is it's it's a way to create distance. I mean, right. that's my understanding of it. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's you know, if, if we really buy into, like, say, the sort of everything is a prison sort of thinking of, like, Foucault, I mean, I, if you buy into that completely um, and, and you're able to function on a daily basis, I don't know how that's possible. I assume that you would need irony to exist if you really, you know. Yeah, there's definitely a coordinate, like, there are, there's compartmentalization I mean, it's obvious you talked about like the conspiracy theory stuff is just another cope, just like irony, right? It's all a cope to try to deal with an incomprehensible world that makes absolutely no sense and then is accelerating to a point that is completely bewildering to most people. Well, I mean, to anyone, I, to be honest. What I was going to say that was uh, that's probably the most cringe thing of all is that. I, I think the reason I got into theory and stuff like the losing Guattari is because I grew up, uh, I got into punk later on, but my initial love was industrial, like subculture, industrial music. I've and I'm not just that. talking like Nine Inch Nails and that like pop industrial. I'm talking like Throbbing Gristle, SPK, uh, which SPK is interesting because that name comes from the, uh, the Socialist Patients Collective. They were like an industrial noise band from the 70s. But they were actually directly influenced by Deleuze, uh, Baudrillard, and they sort of dealt with the, the Socialist Patients Collective. The actual thing that they were based on was a uh, pro mental illness communist collective. I don't have you heard of that? I'm not. I'm not familiar. Uh, it's kinda... it's interesting. the The head of the collective uh, was this doctor who wrote a book called turn illness into a weapon and for their therapy sessions he would give them bomb like materials and be like well you have to build bombs so we can destroy capitalism and then your mental illness went (laughs) interesting but uh yeah the spk was interested in all of that stuff i mean the band not the actual socialist patients collective there's the band and then there was the the actual patients collective that the band based itself off of gotcha um 
And then there was like bands like Skinny Puppy and Ministry, which all dealt with like subjects related to like mental illness, uh, that sort of machinic, cold sound. And I, I found a lot of that, the equivalent to that for me was in a lot of theory stuff, right? So like I read Nick Land and I'm like, oh, this, this like meltdown stuff reminds me of this music I grew up on, you know, this sort of like industrial rivet head cyberpunk culture. Um, and it spoke to me. Same with uh, Deleuze and Guattari, like nomadic war machines. And, you know, I remember the first time I read uh, the first volume of uh, Capitalism and Schizophrenia. And they, they were like talking about Judge Schreiber shoots sunbeams out of his <laughs> ass. I was like, oh, this is like totally... Uh, the imagery I get when I listen to like a weird skinny puppy album or when I read, you know, a William S. Burroughs novel. So to me, it was just like finding something outside of my general interests that sort of have the same or a similar aesthetic, if that makes sense. That sort of like cold, futuristic, weird, uh, slightly paranoid aesthetic. Definitely, I'm very much, I think, uh, inspired by uh, the David Lynch Dune film, at least from an aesthetic standpoint. Right, right. I like the weird kind of uh, Baroque, but also like technologically advanced kind of dialectic there. Um, but I always wanted to look like the the uh, Spacing Guild. Not the little like giant brained baby man, but like the other dudes that were like bald and, and spoke on their behalf or, you know what I mean? They like roll into the emperor's uh, grand yeah. hall and, and have that meeting about plans within plans and so forth. I, I guess what I'm saying is uh, like when I read capitalism and schizophrenia for, for the first time, the great D and G, you know, their, their sort of magnum opus, right? Their first album. It wasn't right. Their first <laughs> It wasn't necessarily that I understood everything in it, but I almost viewed it as like a work of art. Like I sort of let it wash over me, like the imagery it creates. It's almost like reading a novel in a way. Yeah. (laughs) Or reading like a William S. Burroughs cut up. You're like, you're sort of just letting the imagery flow over you. Yeah. And that's how I got into the theory stuff. It wasn't necessarily out of like an intense interest to like, fully understand the stuff initially it was more just an interest in the imagery and the feelings it evoked in me i mean i think that's a good way to approach their work definitely up a thousand plateaus even more so steps in that direction of like blurring the lines between fiction and and mm-hmm. and theory just a lot a lot more like it picks up on what anti-oedipus did and like ratchets up the intensities significantly but i love the opening like the first like couple of paragraphs of anti-oedipus is just outstanding it's like a breakneck pace about desiring machines mm-hmm. that i think is is just cool as hell it's fucking oh, hell metal, yeah man. <laughs> fucking metal we need a deleuze and guattari based metal band that's what the world needs. But I think I wonder if people would find that cringe, that idea of getting into reading Deleuze and Guattari 
not because you were into like you know not because you went to grad school or anything but you just found you just like being sort of weird a kinship with the the imagery and the uh, aesthetic of it the weirdness of it yeah I, I kind of, I, because i think that's a lot i think that's why a lot of people get into like nick land the losing guitari you know but yeah i don't think most people thing. admit that you know right yeah i mean i would probably cop to you it's it's kind of like the most extreme example of post-structuralism. And I'm oftentimes like, I'm looking for that really like singular niche thing in whatever category, whether that be like music or comic books or movies or what have you. It's like, I'm always looking for that niche. Like MF Doom is my favorite rapper, for example. And so that, you know, I, mean, I think that's a good example of, you know, I've, kind of I've like, only heard, I've only heard one MF Doom track and it's the, uh, he did a track that has Bukowski. Yeah, yeah. The, the poet on it. It's called Cells, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I love Bukowski, and there's another thing that people will fucking. Everything I love is like now considered cringe, and that's probably in part because all the things I love have been ruined by their fandom. Like I still love my Bill Hicks, but you know, bands like Tool ruined Bill Hicks for me, and uh, <laughs> also the fandom of Bill Hicks ruined Bill Hicks for me, but. Um, oh, I, same I, I with like Bukowski, his fans. I just can't stand the whole like aggro, like, oh, I'm so macho. I'm like, yeah, but if you read Bukowski's poetry in its entirety, like the, the whole of his poetry is about a guy who actually doesn't want to be macho and realizes he's, you know, terminally screwed up because of it. Um, but yeah. I, I took you off the the path, MF Doom and rap. I just I love that track that he did, Cells. It's really great. It's got that good timpani drum in there. And mm-hmm. I think a uh, Bukowski re or he's got the sample of Bukowski reading Dinosauria, which is Dinosauria we, yes. Extremely relevant if you listen to the to the content. Um I mean I think it fits <laughs> it fits our post apocalyptic world. I, I when no, I was it, in film school I did a mashup of Dinosauria We with uh, the black metal band Burzum. Uh, what was it? It was one of the instrumental tracks, but it, it was a very, uh, it's a very odd little video I put together and people were like, that's the most depressing thing I've ever heard in my life. Uh, sounds, but, sounds great to me. I like, well, yeah, but I, I, I think the, the normies out there. Yeah. Now I'm using the internet language. Uh, the, the normies out there were uh, kind of like, whoa, what's wrong with this dude? He's really depressive. <laughs> yeah, man, being being depressed is cool, man. Okay. <laughs> I do identify, though, with that, too, because for me, I mean, Fight Club came out was when I was in high school, and mm-hmm. high school me absolutely fucking loved, loved right. the movie, and uh, I would, like, call it my Bible and shit <laughs> for, for many, many years, and for a long time, it was, like, my favorite movie of all time. Now, do you have a different view of Fight Club now? I went back and watched it not long ago, and I think that, I don't know. Because I'm I'm pretty sure it's a satire. Yeah, it's like a need, I don't know. There's like a weird, I don't think that it, like the people that say that, I don't know, there's the most popular readings of the film, I think, are both wrong. (laughs) Because there's often like, you're kind of like chided for like, okay, so... Uh, Tyler Durden is not the he's not someone you're supposed to identify with right Mm -hmm. in the film like I don't know that that's you know I don't know if that's 
what I exactly latched onto, but at the same time, like the reverse of that is that, you know, this is like some kind of macho thing, but I think it's very much so like a, I mean, it's a definitely the film at least is going pretty hard at, at consumerist shit. I mean, in that way, it's very much like nineties, right? It's like sort of attacking capitalism from a standpoint, but it's not really connecting it. It's not making a materialist like critique exactly. It's sort of nibbling away at the edges of the world that we now live in. And I think of immediately of that scene where he's in his apartment and it starts to take on the, the aesthetic of the, of the Ikea catalog and like all the names and prices are coming up. I mean, that's very much like that's Baudrillard right there. That's, a very like post-structuralist critique, I think. So I think the movie hasn't aged that well, but it still has a lot of great shit. And I think that ultimately the, a lot of the stuff that Project Mayhem even did was pretty, most of it was pretty harmless shit, right? Like what did they do? They had the birds shit all over the BMW cars. They smashed, they let that like, corporate art thing roll into that coffee shop they blew up a storefront at night um they blew up the credit card buildings at night um i think bob you know fucking what's his meatloaf uh robert paulson that was like the only like casualty really that occurred as part of their whole project mayhem so all in all you know obviously like there was a there was a machismo element to it, but I don't know if it's as vile and like retrograde as, as people seem to think. Like there's there's kind of a knee-jerk reaction to it, I think, that is it's, a bit unfair. I mean, it's just interesting to me. I, I mention it because there's like certain movies that I watched growing up that I interpret differently than I do now. Like for instance, uh, a movie like Dirty Harry, the classic Clint Eastwood oh, yeah. cop movie. Like, you know, I grew up around people that were like, yeah, Dirty Harry, he's the big, you know, hero that doesn't play by the rules, but he's still a good guy that's trying to stop the killer. Yeah. yeah. But when I watched that movie in college, I was like, it's not really about a hero. He's not even an anti-hero. He, he's a psychopath. Yeah. Exactly. It's, right. He's a psychopath that's being pitted against another psychopath. And if you watch the original uh promos for that movie that's how they initially sold it but then it took on a life of its own because i guess conservatives were like no he's actually a good guy but i mean if you really watch it devoid of all the the hype around it it's it's really a movie that doesn't really glorify uh cops that much right Uh, another movie like that is have you ever seen falling down with michael douglas yes yeah i was that that movie fascinates me I think because, about that movie all the time uh, because I work in customer service. Oh, really? <laughs> and well, sometimes it, I have I'm like a just like a hair away from having my my falling down moment. <laughs> I, I, ah, but but are you as bitter as defense is? I don't think that I'm that bitter. I'm not bitter towards like normal people. <laughs> I'm bitter at power structures. Absolutely, but I, that's not that. But that's not what. What's interesting about Falling Down is every middle class suburban I, I know loves that movie. Yeah. It's a movie about a it's man a reactionary, that was pushed too far. Right. There's a reactionary element to it in that, like, 
It's the same shit that we're sold like, oh, it's I don't, like. No, no, no. I, I don't think it's reactionary movie. I think it's making fun of that mentality. I, I think the movie like very clearly points out that the, the reason he's going home, right, is he's going to family annihilate. Like that, that's the clear implication because he's an abuser. He abuses his wife. Um, and we're told that early on in the movie. He's going home to kill his family, essentially. And the, the whole, not to spoil the ending, even though it's been 20 years, but like the, the whole ending of the movie is the cop saying to him, the fuck, you know, you're mad because someone lied to you. You didn't get what you wanted in life. I could have had a turkey dinner. <laughs> the, the whole point of the movie is to say, no, defense is not the good guy. Yeah. So to me, it's making fun of that sort of resentful, I didn't get mine mentality, even though I did everything right. Yeah. I mean, it's okay to be upset that, you know, things didn't turn out right. But the way that character acts is like, I'm going to screw up everyone's day because yeah. I didn't get mine. You know, uh, but to me, the movie is making fun of that. Whereas when other people watch that movie, I think they're like, no, I identify with him. It's like Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad's another example of that. I always have people tell me, uh, Walter White uh, was a guy that was trying to help his family. No, he, was, he, he's, he gets an adrenaline rush from, from everything he does. He's not a, a heroic character at all. He's a narcissistic sociopath. And uh, the whole show is basically him coming to grips with that. I think he even says that to his, his wife at one point in the show. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe at the beginning, there's like a trajectory that that he t- goes down where it quickly becomes clear that 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 element has been subsumed into this other, like this narcissism. Well, it's, it's, it, those movies are the most interesting to me, though, because they're, the, the movie about the horrible person coming to realize how horrible they are and accepting it. There's something oddly appealing to me about that. Like it's, it's uncomfortable cinema and I I enjoy that sort of uncomfortable cinema. Have you seen the uh, show Legion? No, I have not. Should I put this on my, Oh, you should absolutely. Um, So it's about, it's ostensibly it's a, uh, you know, Legion is a, an X-Men character, but I wouldn't let that color like your judgment of the show. Like it, it does have some elements of sort of, uh, of that world, but it's more, it's far, far more focused on, I think issues of like mental health and, and like psycho psychoanalysis and examining oneself and like uh, trying to fit. Yeah. That idea of like, Am I am I a good person or like is that is is me telling myself that I'm good and I'm deserving of love is that my delusion am I right. delusional right in telling myself that I'm a good person so um, it's interesting in that way but I think visually and like the storytelling is extremely clever um, it makes use of a lot of um, like interesting narrative well, techniques visually you know so, since we're talking about media i mean we, we've sort of danced around it this whole time we're both podcasters right so we, we have to talk a little bit about podcasting i don't know how long have you been podcasting i've been doing this for about two years and over 200 episodes now so 
I just celebrated the third anniversary of the show. I want to say it was May 8th was, was the third anniversary of the show. Okay. Yeah, I started in May as well. May two years ago. But you've been going a, a year longer than me. Wow. But I've only done, uh, I'm at like 123. I, I had to take like four episodes down because my friend that I had had on is uh, job hunting. And so per their request, I had to remove a few. But I've, so I've, I haven't quite hit 130 episodes just yet. What, what, what sort of spurred you to do it? I was, I think, a frustrated kind of filmmaker and just realizing at the time that, you know, I'm going to go fucking nuts if I don't have a project or like if I don't produce something that I can unequivocally claim as my own. Like I can, I have to have something that I'm laboring towards where I can reap the full uh, benefit of my productivity to like get super (laughs) Marxist with it. I think it is some of it. That that's funny because I was also at one point an aspiring filmmaker, so and so obviously odd like, how we had similar yeah. trajectories. But I well, I was interested because you know I kind of have thought a lot about why why people like us get into media, and like part of me it does get self critical at least with myself. Where I'm like, what aspect of this is like an ego thing or yeah. like wanting some form of attention. Like I, I talk to a lot of people in uh, in the world of pro wrestling. Pro wrestlers are very interesting people. People don't realize that. Like, yeah, yeah, wrestling's fake, all that stuff. But like, they're literally doing a performance, and often the old school guys are living that performance. Like, they don't break character in public. Um, I'm talking like the old school sort of wrestlers. But uh, it's interesting because I've asked wrestlers before. I'm like, well, why do you like? Why do you do this? Because it's kind of a, a crappy job to have unless you're like The Rock or like Steve Austin, whatever. Yeah, if you're just a jobber. Yeah, or if you're a guy that's on the indie circuit, as they call it. Right. And you're just traveling from town to town. And they're just like, I, I don't know. It's just like when the fans pop, which is the, the sort of wrestling kayfabe lingo for, uh, you know, cheering. Or like when you, when you get that, yeah. you know, WrestleMania moment, they're right. like, there's just, I get something out of that. And I like, it's obviously an ego thing. Right. And I think that's true for actors. I think that's true for musicians. Um, and I think it's true for us podcasters in a way too. I think we enjoy the, the attention in some type of way. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely, I'm not going to, I wouldn't deny that at, at all. I've to some degree, I think that's, that's absolutely like a, certainly a part of it for sure. But I think more so for me, it's like the part of like, I have to do something like I'm fucking around and I'm not, producing anything this is an achievable project you've been infected by neoliberalism (laughs) right no that that's such an i mean i even find myself doing that i need to be more productive like i mean it feels like one of the tenets of our neoliberal society like this need to constantly be productive but i think in terms of like because i i think of myself i mean this is pretentious as fuck but i do consider myself an artist like that is the like that's something that I identify with is producing art and that's kind of how I approach life in general. Listen, listen, you're not pretentious until you start doing what Prince did. If you start calling yourself the artist formerly known as (laughs) Cooper, then you're pretentious. But yeah, I mean, I like live, I try to live, I try to live art, I think to a certain degree and like play with 
it's fun to play with meaning. It's fun to play with language and signifiers and mm-hmm. put together things and that free play. I don't know. There's something, there's something there that's, there's a value to it in some degree at some level, right? That I think escapes, it's not fully subsumed into capital. I think there is something else. Like there's a, there's a desire for something else. Mm -hmm. I I wasn't, I wasn't trying to say that that productivity and neoliberalism thing is just, I I think it's different when you want to be productive with something you love and something you're doing creatively. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's not like I'm making a, a ton of money doing the podcast. I mean, I'm, I, I've lost money pretty really? much the, the whole time that, you know, I've been losing money on, on producing the podcast. But, I'm just starting to make more money doing my podcast. So that's not really what it's about. It's like, it's about me. Like I, I have to do the show as, because I need it. Like I need to produce. Is it, it's almost the like therapy for you in a way or kind of, yeah. In, in a sense, like I have to put out something and i i mean i enjoy even doing the uh, meme thumbnails for the episodes like that that's a lot of fun for me and i get a huge thrill and like joy out of something as simple as coming up with like the episode art for example see i i'm the type of person i love talk like i love this right now what yeah we're doing. oh just real, conversing is like the most exhilarating thing for yeah me. I, I love talking you know i can't shut up um I, I do multiple phone calls a day with different contacts. I, you know, I almost like moonlight as a journalist in a way, but um, when I'm not podcasting and I just really enjoy that aspect, but everything else can be such a pain. You know what I mean? Uh, like having to write up the episode synopses. Yeah. You know, making sure you hit it so that, there's enough words that it'll show up in the SEO and all this. <laughs> oh my God. It's so painful to me. And then like some of the, have you had any um, parasocial relationships coming out of the podcast? Have you read up on parasocial relationships? Not very much. What, what is a parasocial relationship? So I, I guess in the age of the internet, it's people wanting to have a relationship not not like romantic or anything, right. just but like a parasocial, like not in person relationship yeah. with the podcasters they listen to or the the Twitter influencers or the, what do they call it the social media influencers or just influencers, um, and it can get weird at times because like I'm not a guru type person. Like I've had people ask me, uh, I, like I've had a few guests on that have talked about the history of occultism, and I'm not really you know much of um, like I I'm into the I'm into occultism, but I don't believe in it in a like very literal sense. Right. Okay. I think most of it is like psychology. Yeah. Um, like stuff like chaos magic, Aleister right. Crowley. I'm into that stuff, but to me, it's a lot of it's just psychology to me. Right. Yeah. Um, no, it's sort of psychological tricks you can play on your mind. Yeah. But I'll have some people like email me and they'll just be like, what books do I need to read on occultism to understand the secrets? And I'm like, I, I actually hate that mentality. <laughs> I'm like, wait, don't ask me that because I can't tell you. I Make up your own, like, I, I'm the type of person, I'll be like, make up your own religion. Make up your own weird daily fucking rituals. Who gives a shit? Make your own secret society. Fuck. I, I'm too much of an anarchist to believe in, like, hierarchy and tradition. <laughs> it's funny because the internet had, or, like, shit posting in particular, Twitter has 
improved my life. Um, I met I, most of my friends, like my in real life friends that I interact with are through from shitposting. Like I met my roommate from shitposting um, because it's like the only way to find organically or I guess quasi organically people that are interested in theory or like leftism or or shit like that. You know what I mean? No, I feel you on that. I mean, th- I, I've gotten a lot of good relationships out of what I do, uh, podcasting. But you also get like, I think sometimes people want to turn you into like an expert or a guru. Yeah. And I'm like, no, that's not cool, man. Like, <laughs> or like people are like, it must be really hard doing a podcast. And I'm like, right. I mean, there's things <laughs> that are difficult about it, like organizing it can be, stuff. Right? But yeah, it's, yeah, but it's not. It's not work. Well, I, no, I think I think it is work. I do put a great deal of effort full time into this, but like what I what I always tell people, like anyone can do this. Yeah. It just takes time, right? Like you know, it's there isn't like some magic bullet secret. You know, like most jobs, it just takes uh, you know, ten thousand hours of uh, before you become an expert, right? I think that's the Malcolm Gladwell <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah, tongue in cheek. Yeah, there isn't like some innate thing to it. Um, that's the only thing that gets me weirded out by the parasocial aspect of, of doing, of being a quote unquote influencer. God, I hate that term. I had done, uh, when I was in college, we had a cable access TV show and I did like a five minute version of, I, kind of like a mix up between that old like e-show, The Soup, The Colbert mm-hmm. Report and the SNL like weekend update. Mm-hmm. So I did this kind of weird, because I was like a character to some degree, and I would like make fun of Democrats and Republicans and just like basically trying to point out the hypocrisy of everything and be like somewhat more balanced, quote unquote, at the time. So what, what's your favorite, what have your favorite podcasts been of the, of the ones that you've done? Hmm. I feel like now I'm interviewing you. <laughs> right. Uh, that's okay. I don't get asked many questions by guests. So that that's good. I like it. It sw- switches it up a little bit. Um, one of my favorites is not, it's not that long ago. It's called uh, De Zizek. And it was about this article that Zizek wrote about COVID. Mm-hmm. A few, it was, and it was a few weeks before like shit really hit the fan. And it was a really just fun episode that I did with an, another guy from uh, Psychic Dolphin Garage, that podcast. And we just kind of read the article and just had had fun. He came over and like, you know, we had some drinks and it was like just a good full-on episode just without much structure other than the, the article itself. Those are the best episodes. That was fun. It's like, you know, sometimes I'm sure you experience this too. It's like you get done recording and you're like, yes, that was, that was fucking good. That was perfect. Yeah. yeah you know what I mean? That that definitely happens. Um, that was one of my favorites, but shit, it's it's probably more of those episodes where it's been just kind of like this one, where we're not really focusing on like a reading or like a book or a, a serious serious topic. Although we're kind of flirting with those, right? But mm-hmm. those are oftentimes like the more fun ones because you it's you're not. So well, it's like a rhizome. About, yeah, <laughs> not having to worry about oh, like reading. Um, a book before <laughs> before we're doing an episode See, it can be liberating sometimes that that's what i wanted to touch on with you actually because 
One of the things I've noticed more and more is my favorite episodes that I've done for Parallax Views, it's less about politics and theory usually and more about people's personal experiences. Yeah. Like I'm not – in some ways I'm becoming less interested in people's inner world of ideas and more in just the things they experience in their daily life. Or like – like I've I've had like some of my favorite guests have been, um, like I've interviewed, I've interviewed one of the world's top uh, cyber dominatrixes, <laughs> this nice. woman, uh, Ciara Lynch, and then I interviewed a uh, Vanita Estella, which I thought that episode would be more controversial because it was called "Satanic Strippers for Bernie Sanders." <laughs> she is literally a, a Satanist. She's part of the uh, the Satanic Temple, which is sort of like a left wing sort of a Satanist group. They don't worship the devil; they worship themselves. But uh, they use the devil as sort of a symbol to uh, agitate uh, the Christian right. But I interviewed her about you know, okay, so you're a Satanist, you're you know, into Bernie Sanders uh, <laughs> and you're a stripper and you, you do sex work. And I, I find the experiences of those two women and other guests I've had on that have personal experiences that are sort of outside the norm to be much more interesting and much more uh, fascinating in a lot of ways than, you know, endlessly discussing, uh, Oh, how can we interpret Marx correctly? Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I like to keep a good, like, I like to kind of do both. I'll have, so like, that's why I was saying, hey, let's just, let's just wrap. Let's just riff for this episode. Right, right. Because I, I need those too. Like oftentimes that, com- just a conversation like this is more right. fun. And people like enjoy, gen- people tend to enjoy, I think, genuine interaction. And then I think that's right. why like Rogan, for example, is mm-hmm. very like, he's very disarming kind of guy to talk to you on That's that true. show right you know what i mean so people like that kind of genuine interaction and without that, having that to hit- you know that that dominatrix i mentioned before ciara lynch <laughs> one of one of the reasons uh, i had her on was go. because i heard her on rogan oh really okay and uh she's the only person that was only on rogan for like an hour and he like quickly wrapped up the interview uh, That's and funny. i think it's because he was like freaked out yeah um <laughs> 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 uh, so yeah, but I find people with those stories. And another guest that I really liked having on was uh, Joseph McBride, who McBride is like one of the most acclaimed film historians of all time. And he's perhaps most known for a book called Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success. So he writes this biography and it was unauthorized, of Frank Capra, but he got... Capra and Capra's estate to participate in it. And he told them up front, he's like, I'm going to reveal the real Frank Capra, which means I'm going to show how Capra sold out his own friends during uh, the Red Scare and all this other stuff. And they said, yeah, that's cool. This sounds really interesting. But as he actually starts getting around to it, you know, they start hiding documents from him, stealing documents that they gave to him. And it, his, his story, he wrote a biography recently uh, an autobiography of himself, like a memoir of his experience writing the Capra biography. So it's like a biography of having to write the biography. <laughs> and the way he relates his experience, it's like a Capra-esque 
uh, or a, a Kafkaesque telling of, you know, what happens when you're a biographer and your subject and the estate of that subject, in this case, Frank Capra, the guy who directed movies like It's a Wonderful Life, what happens when you cross them? And they try to censor you and the, even the publisher goes up against you and, you know, everyone's gaslighting you. And it was a really interesting episode because he's giving you an insight into, well, this is what can happen if you're a journalist or a biographer or someone working in media. And it's a really interesting contained story, a, a true story of a guy who did something really interesting. He writes this biography and he came up against a wall because he was trying to tell the truth about his subject. And then, you know, the fallout that, that happened because of that. Like, just a personal story like that. Yeah. To me, that, that makes for the most interesting type of, of show. Yeah. Because it gets to the human element. Right. Whereas we can talk about the ideas of Slavoj Zizek all day, but it feels so much colder. And I'm trying to get more into like the, the warmth, right? Like what, what makes us human are the stories yeah. we tell. Yeah. No, I, I can totally see that. And I, I definitely agree that it's that, it's that genuine kind of human interaction and, and experience that really like people can, it's also, it's also, the personal, it's also the personal stories because yeah. each and every one of us have a personal story. Right. You, you could probably go on for, you know, hours on end about growing up in a Christian fundamentalist household. Um, I, I had Joshua Strawn on a year, a year or so ago. And Joshua is like one of the, he was a major player in the post-punk revival in New York, but we spend most of the time talking about well, what, what's it like growing up in like a hyper evangelical uh, household where like you're basically fed left behind novels. <laughs> and it's like, to me, that's even more interesting than just talking about, Oh, how do you make the music? Like, what, what, yeah. how, how do you use the kick pedal? Right. Like, the personal history yeah. is usually, like, a million times more fascinating than anything else. And it usually informs the work they do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny that you mentioned that. I, so if I, if I were to have Nick Land on the podcast, I would, I, I would definitely absolutely talk about shitposting probably more than, <laughs> more than anything. Right, right. right. Because Land does, he's kind of a decent, he's a decent shit poster, believe it or not. I mean, he Even knows it, how to push buttons. For, for a boomer, he's a pretty good poster. Uh, I got to give him credit. Right. Unless right. it's about fucking like I, world IQ is going down or something like that. Obviously, those are, are garbage, but he does have some pretty funny, some pretty funny like sardonic shit often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, that's that's the thing. I I like often wonder when it comes to shit posting. Like like I hate this distinction between shit posting and effort posting. Like what, what does that mean? Uh. <laughs> effort posting. That's good. I like that. Right. Uh, I mean, I'm a prolific shit poster. Uh, mm-hmm. I just go for the the stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. My my timeline is like Finnegan's Wake. On, right. on Adderall. <laughs> I really so the, enjoy it. 
do you do shit post podcasts as well? <laughs> <laughs> I definitely talk about shit posting a lot in the podcast. I remember um, when I had Todd McGowan on for one of the funniest, like one of my most enjoyable moments was explaining to him the Chad Virgin dialectic. Right. Ironically, because his brother, he said, was named Chad. And so he like he had never heard of that distinction, which I thought was really funny. So that's like a kind of funny moment um, that I really enjoyed. Another one was uh, I had Todd May, who he had wrote it like an intro to uh, Deleuze. And, uh, yeah, I've read that. Talking about uh, that, you know, the explain Deleuze to me meme to, uh, <laughs> to Todd May was pretty funny. So even if I'm in a serious theory discussion, I will still try to throw in oh, really? something to kind of tie it into, I don't know, just to make things, I don't know, I don't know giving examples or like using metaphors to try to- It, it lightens the mood. Further. Yeah, that too. I mean, I think right? there's, you, you have to put some humor and like irony in there at some point whenever the, whenever the moment's right. See, I, you know, I said that to Jake Flores when I had him on recently. Uh, Jake, of course, does Pod Down America, and he's a comedian. So I like, I told him, I sort of said in a roundabout way, I'm like, I envy people like you and Chapo because I don't understand shit posting, and I also don't understand, like, like I'm not the guy that can go on the airwaves and be like the funny guy. Yeah. I'm not a comedian, right? I, I, I like know how to do like serious deep dives. And I often wish I was the guy that could just be funny, ha and, you know, stand up, uh, do stand up comedy, right? But it's funny because I feel like Jake, he sort of said in a way that uh, he wants to be the guy doing serious stuff at times. That, that's funny. You know, every, it, we, we always want to be the opposite of what we are. Yeah. You know, right. That's very. Lacanian right there. Right, right. But uh I was gonna say there was there was one more. We were talking about guests. You know, uh one one of my favorite guests that I had on was um have you ever heard of Joseph Matheny? Ah, the name sounds so he familiar. he is the guy that invented the alternate reality game or the ARG. And that's one of my favorite interviews. And it's also one of the only times where one of my favorite personal interviews also ended up being like one of my most popular interviews. So this would interest you. Joseph Matheny invented the alternate reality game, which is basically in the heydays of the internet, he, him and a bunch of other people got together and they started this mythos called the Ong's Hat Mythos. And it's sort of this alternate history conspiracy theory, but it was all a game, right? Yeah. And like, with the, I, I don't know what a good example of like a modern day alternate reality game would be. There, there's uh, I Love Bees that they did for Halo. So Nine Inch Nails did the one for Year Zero. Yeah, Year yeah. Zero, which I so, love. I love that fucking album, by the way. Matheny was the first guy to do that, but he did it with this whole Ong's Hat conspiracy thing. And then the corporations came in and took it and used it for their own ends, right? This idea. But the weirdest thing was he said to me, there were people that were playing the game that knew it was a game, but eventually they thought it was real. Huh. And I, I don't know if you would have a Lacanian answer to uh, <laughs> who? 
how we end up making ourselves believe in, in strange things. I mean, there's definitely a subconscious aspect to it that is the driver. Like that's Lacan's whole sort of version of the unconscious is that hmm. it works in a, it's a symbolic, like it speaks in a symbolic methodology, but there's the, the symbols are incomplete. The message gets scrambled from the unconscious to your actually conscious mind. Right. And that's where, that's what the unconscious is. It's like, there's that gap between your unconscious desire and your like logical, like frontal cortex that's telling you what you want. And oftentimes See, those are in contradiction with, with one another. Right, right. And I think that contradiction and the relationships between those contradictions when looked at in terms of things like desire are extreme, like that is just a gold mine. That's extremely fascinating to me. Well, the other reason I brought that up is I've been thinking a lot more lately about why people believe the things they do. And I, that, that interview with Matheny really haunts me. And I suggest, I think your listeners would like that interview because I found that very telling when he said, even the people who are playing this game started to believe it was real. Almost like uh, that, have you ever heard of uh, Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's almost like that type of scenario, right? But it happened in the real world, right? So Yeah. And when him saying that really haunted me because I think about stuff today like uh, QAnon or Russiagate or the type of people who buy anything they hear on Fox News. And people will say, oh, these people are just uneducated or they're dumb. Yeah. It, and I've said to people, or, or the thing I always hear is, oh, they're just brainwashed. If yeah. they would just shut off the Fox News, yeah. then... It's not that simple. It is, it's definitely not that simple. That's why, to me, psychoanalysis is so fascinating. Because I don't see how else you try to understand our world <laughs> at all. Like, well, so, so, so psychoanalysis I... is the only thing that kind of makes maps onto like, these weird <laughs> fucking outcomes and this like mm -hmm. unexpected or like this contradictory thing between desire and behavior and outcome you, and like want and need. And so, so, so do, do you remember uh, when Columbine happened, there was that story about the girl, I think it was Casey Bernal. And the, the apocryphal story was that she was a good little Christian girl and Dylan and Eric, they said, do you believe in Jesus? And she said, yes. And they shot her. That story's bullshit. <laughs> it never happened. Um, the journalists who covered Columbine found out that it never happened. There's no way to verify that story. Uh, there was a girl that said she believed in Jesus, to my understanding. But they didn't shoot her for some reason. They got distracted. But it's interesting because there was an evangelical that said, it doesn't matter if it didn't happen. It's true. Yeah. And I, I'm starting to find that subject much more interesting because like even I, I think a lot of people don't give like evangelical preachers enough credit. Uh, like I think they're operating on a different idea of truth oh, it's, than we are. I mean, if you listen to like fucking Jordan Peterson, he even kind of outright gets at that. But I think you're right. Like for me growing up to so like the Southern Baptist preacher oftentimes like did, did, the, did the preachers know necessarily that you, you may know that oh this person isn't really possessed 
right? By like a demon or something. But it's true on like some weird metaphysical level. Right. It doesn't matter if it's like real. It's, it's well, like with the Casey Bernal thing. So, okay. So it may not have happened, but something like it has probably happened in history. Therefore, it's true. It's true in like some uh, narrative sense. So I think that's how you can justify making up bullshit. I think that the figure of the preacher is, is super interesting. And I think particularly in the context of product, like my experience, the preacher is oftentimes kind of actually, <laughs> believe it or not, they in some ways remind you of a podcaster because it's like this balance of like the deep study of texts and generating narratives, like using a text to come up with a narrative. And I, I'm not... I, I wanted to say, by the way, I, I know since you said you had a fundamentalist background, I'm not saying like everyone that's like a fundamentalist is like right. okay. deliberately deceiving people or yeah, like no, that no, they, no. they don't, that they're not as bad as they may seem. That's not what I'm saying. Oh yeah. I'm not even yeah. getting, that's not really how I was okay. saying. I'm just more so like, I think it is interesting to look at the, the preacher because it's, again, it's like this weird combination of like, to some degree, you're kind of a stand up comedian there's like that that is part of it because oftentimes preachers you, like tell they include jokes in their right. in their sermons right so it's have, like have you seen the video of that preacher recently who was like he just looks at the screen and he, he says covid19 and then he makes the blowing sound like Phew. he's like i blow the wind of god at you <laughs> and you are gone or something and I, well it's fascinating because like it's uh I think what you're getting at is that they're almost like carny performers. You yeah. Know, they remind me of carnival performers or like a carny barker. That's an aspect you know? of it for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like they're, they're very much schooled in their text of the Bible and then like constructing a narrative out of the Bible that fits their like message or their moral of their story. But they're using, you know, they're using comedy oftentimes or, analogy or metaphor and like it's kind of this weird shamanistic thing even to some degree right because they're they're sort of leading the flock right it's sort of this old school like pre-capitalist relationship between the shaman and like what? like the der- deriving the, the the narrative that will sort of heal the tribe and like bring uni- unity and, right. and love and brother fellowship and all that sort of stuff. So it is kind of funny to like look at them as this sort of, they are, you're right. And like in a lot of senses are kind of like this multimedia performer that has, is kind of dabbling in stand up comedy and also like maybe you would say hermeneutics or, or what have you. Right. So I, th- I think that is an interesting examination. It'd be interesting to like write a book or something or do a documentary on, well, the on, other the, the other Southern thing, Baptist preachers. The the other thing that's interesting, and then we'll we'll wrap up. I know we've went long. Is uh, like with the Fox News thing. I said, um, someone said, oh, if the, these uneducated people just need to turn off the Fox News, and I'm like, no, that's just your way of making yourself feel better, Mister Liberal. Like, it's not that they're uneducated. I don't think it has to do. I, I don't think all of it can be put down to education. Yeah, it definitely you know? absolutely can. Like, like it's part and I don't of it. E- that may be part of it, but the, the other aspect of it is it's not like Fox just brainwashes people. It's not, there's not like some brainwashing fucking signal. It's not Videodrome, yeah. you know. It's 
I think a lot of people that watch Fox News, they feel that they are the good patriotic Americans. They have subsumed the ideas that they were fed during the Cold War of America number one, uh, death to the rest, right? Right. We're number one and we're going to dictate everything. And Fox gives them that narrative. And let's say that everything Fox News says is BS. It doesn't matter to them because it feels true. Right. So it, it, that's the same with QAnon people. I don't think QAnon people care if it's true. It feels true. And the thing that gets me today about people, including people on the left, is everyone thinks that the best argument will win out. Yeah. The most rational argument will win out. Uh, uh, my my friend Ben Burgess would probably get annoyed at me saying this. <laughs> ben, ben wrote uh, Logic for the Left, which is a really good book that Zero released. Um, but I just I don't think that Logic has much to do with how humans operate. It like, does to some degree, but it's not the it's not we're the, not we're not rational animals. We're emotional yeah, animals. Very much, very much like what is rational is influenced by all these like you, even what is considered rational is sort of a well there is a logic to how the fox news yeah viewer thinks there it has its own logic it may be divorced of the empirical reality yeah right but it's it's just interesting to me because no one wants to look at it that way you know it's like when someone said to me recently oh these evangelical right-wingers they are not good christians (laughs) you know or they'll say like how could you well what they'll say is uh that's not very Christian of you to support Donald Trump. How can you <laughs> think about this? Can, can you really be a good Christian and support Trump? And really what they're saying is you're a fucking monster. That is what they are saying to the evangelical when they say that, but they don't say it out loud. It's like the hidden sort of underneath the surface thing going on. Right. Right. But you know, I think that the sort of evangelical right winger just doesn't care you know, like maybe they, it's maybe Christianity isn't the be all end all for them. You know, there's a there's an unconscious enjoyment that they experience that right. isn't entirely rational in the sense that you would you would sort of think mm-hmm. of like I think the common sense view of you know subjectivity and experience and intellect and all of that stuff is way too neat and like linear and follows that one plus two equals three linear pattern when in reality it's it's far more like there's twists and turns and it is a lot about what is what is more palatable to the unconscious and like it's it's tied to things like desire and and hidden drives that we're not really they don't really follow these kind of logical patterns that we're kind of told like oh yeah this is a fully like rational society that's what liberalism is based on is like oh well like rational actors making using prices to make that, rational that's, decisions. That's the weird you know? thing about, about um, like liberalism in, in capitalist society is like the, there really is this idea that everything's a, a one and zero binary. Yeah. And, and everything's a rational choice. It's like, no, because humans aren't, we're not like purely rational machines. Right. And that's just the way it is. Uh, that's why someone like Fukuyama seems like he was so wrong about where history was headed. You know, with his whole end of history hypothesis, and it it's it's just interesting to me that we always like to think that the most rational argument wins out, but within capitalism, I mean, what is capitalism about if not the investments we have? You know, a lot of the times I think people 
believe what they hear on Fox News or MSNBC because they have an investment in believing those things, right? I yeah, mean, they have like know, an un- they have an unconscious investment. It's all tied to like ju- the the joy, the jouissance that is derived from feeling like you're you're right and the, there is an enemy and all of that is very well i mean it, it it can even be material in a way right i mean not not to get away from your point yeah but it, like if you're in la and you're because i've been to la a lot of times it's like the it's the the home of the resistance the donald trump liberal resistance right uh, and if if you if you take the line that Oh, maybe Donald Trump won not because of Russian bots, although I think Russian bots are a thing. I don't think that's why he won the election. Maybe yeah. it was just that Hillary Clinton was not the best candidate, right? If you take that line, you can be expelled from the inner circle in your community, right? Likewise, if you're, you know, if you grew up in an evangelical household or a right-wing community and you you know, you say, "Oh, I'm gay or I'm you know, or I'm a liberal. Oh, you're you're expelled, and materially, you get screwed over because of that. You know, there's a material and a social uh, consequence. Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There, it, it's not it's not one thing ever. Like there's mm-hmm. multi there's multitudes within mm-hmm. within any given arrangement, and different things have larger. You know, it's like a pie pie chart to some degree of like. But then that 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 would indicate work. that not everything is based on rationality or or it's not based on like a uh on rational choice or, or yeah well i i guess there is a rationality to it right like i'm gonna buy into this because that's what everyone i know around me buys into but it's not like based on like a, a pursuit of truth necessarily you know which i mean that that throws a monkey wrench in a lot of our thinking within a liberal democracy oh absolutely breaks down Liberalism breaks down, I mean, pretty pretty obviously, but it's like there's a number of different elements to it. It's not any one thing. Like, yes, there are like material factors that are a force. There are the force of ideology, unconscious desire. Like all of it is this sort of stew of things that are going on. And that percentage and like that relationship between those things can shift at any point any point in time or like from person to person or, or thing to thing that you're looking at, it's very difficult to say like, there's this one over, you know, one meta narrative that can explain all of, all of everything, right? There's not a theory of everything there. It's impossible to derive like this rational, fully logical theory. Like that's just not how, how things work. Right. If I can, before we, um, before we close out, Oh, can I plug two things real quick? Yeah, absolutely. I would. Uh, I always invite guests to plug at, at the end of the episode, so feel free. Okay, so first, uh, by the time when, – when do you think you'll have this episode out? Uh, pro- either this coming Monday or the following. So it would either be what uh, the either the 18th or the 25th, one of those dates. Probably. Okay, so I, I have two interviews that I'm very excited about coming up. What do you I can I can announce this one first. Uh, Noam Chomsky is coming on Parallax Views. Holy shit! Nice. So, Very nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, no introduction needed. Although <laughs> the, the second one, I'm more excited about that. Don't don't tell Noam that I'm more excited <laughs> about another guest. I'm having okay. uh, 
I'm having Robin Sydney on and everyone just went completely quiet because they don't know who Robin Sydney is, but she's one of my favorite. Uh, she's a scream queen in the horror movie world. And uh, like I said, I, I find, uh, I find like the stories of people that work in acting or like biography or just like, like I find stories about people's careers and the things they do almost in a way more interesting than, okay, we can, let's talk to Noam Chomsky about what the propaganda model means for the 500th time. I mean, hopefully I'll get some interesting questions out of, out of Chomsky, but I'm like, has no one ever thought about interviewing this like scream queen who's been in, you know, 20 different horror movies? Like, what's that like? What is it like being a working sort of actress? That's not Angelina Jolie making millions of dollars uh, every year. I mean, to me, that's an untold story for most people. And I kind of hope that's what people get out of Parallax Views. I mean, beyond, you know, the theory stuff and the politics, maybe once in a while they'll get to hear a story of someone who's working in a certain field, whether it be acting or if they're Joseph McBride, McBride, who I mentioned earlier, the film historian, uh, his story of, you know, uh, writing a biography and the ch- the challenges of that, like maybe those are the stories and those are the episodes that will really connect to people, or at least that's what I hope. Because I I think the personal stories we have in a lot of ways are much more telling than the ideas we share. So, yeah, absolutely. Where uh where can we find you? Don't don't forget to plug your uh, Twitter handle if you want. Or uh, use Parallax on Twitter and then parallax views. Uh, the Patreon is patreon.com slash parallax views. And then there's parallax views dot podbean.com. Nice. And that's P A R A L L A X views. Some people, always, I, I always know some people they'll, they'll do the double R no one R. So, I'll definitely put all the links in in the show notes for anybody who's interested. But uh, JG Michael, thanks so much for uh, joining me on a machinic unconscious happy hour for the week. From I my, hope I didn't ramble too much. Oh no! I, like I said, it's good to take a break from the the theory heavy pod stuff. Um, I've got one of those coming up like next week, and I'm continuing that super Guattario series. So I've got to like delve into um, back into machinic unconscious and try to make sense of that shit <laughs> I, I suggest that okay by the time this comes out hopefully i'll have the uh the scream queen interview out so i would suggest everyone what you need to do is you need to i'm not saying indulge in in edibles or uh <laughs> the, the mary jane but you 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 listen to a few episodes about guatari then you switch over to parallax views after listening to the machinic unconscious happy hour <laughs> guatari episodes and you listen to rob and sydney talk about what it was like to appear in such movies as evil bong and the ginger dead man starring gary Busey. evil bong well i'll have to look that one up for sure that's that sounds that sounds good i'm gonna ask her about guatari when i have her on <laughs> nice <laughs> But yeah, this will be a Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. Before we totally wrap up the episode, just want to mention again that you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Find the Twitter feed for the pod at UnconsciousHH and also the Instagram account at UnconsciousHH. But again, 
JG Michael of Parallax Views. Thanks again, my friend. No problem. I, I will have to have you on my podcast at some point. Any, anytime, let me know. Always down. Okay. I'll let you get back to your weekend. Uh, how long did we go? Ah, not even Hour, two hours. Not quite two hours. Not quite two hours. I hope I didn't go off into too many tangents. I, I like, I don't know. I have so many like insanely diverse interests and oh, it's probably like nerdy as all get out. But <laughs> no, I, I, are you, were you happy with it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Would, would you have me on again in the future for a more concentrated yeah. topic? Yeah, we can definitely do something. Yeah, we can find an article or a piece or something. Or okay. Just okay. thinker to focus on or something. Awesome. I like to mix it up. Sounds good. Sounds good. Let me know when this is out and I'll yeah. share it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, talk to you later. Yeah, take care. This is the technical violence of information. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. One and two